This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, and welcome to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. I'm Christopher Melke, and we're joined today by Professor Glabor Klanitsai. Uh, Professor Klanitsai is uh, at, currently at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. With pleasure. Now, uh, I wanted to start off our interview by uh, telling you that I first heard about you years ago um, by reading your book, uh, Holy Rulers and Blessed Princesses. Uh, the, the main idea, as I understood it, was um, it was a... It was a history of holy kingship and sort of sacral rulership, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that for our, our first uh, segment right here. So um, starting off with a very uh, you know generic question, what makes a king or a particular king holy, in your opinion? Well, uh, in Christianity, there are very precise standards for that. Holy or saint is a saint, which mm-hmm. is declared by the church to be a saint. And... Uh, in the case of the Hungarian uh, uh, saint kings, at least in the case of Saint Stephen, that was in a time he was canonized in uh, 1083, so he was the first Christian ruler of Hungary. And uh, after his death, uh, one of his successors, Saint Ladislas, he <laughs> himself was later on uh, canonized, decided that Hungary, and especially the founder of the Hungarian state, uh, has to get the title of sainthood. Mm-hmm. And in 1083, five saints were canonized to the initiative of the Hungarian king by the church. At that moment, uh, the church meant above all the local church, so it was the Archbishop of Estergom who was active in these canonizations. These were local canonizations. Canonization meaning making somebody a saint. Elevating, that meant elevating the remains and inscribing the name into the church calendar and having a yearly celebration of the memory of that saint. Later on, in the 12th century, or from the 12th century on, the papacy, the Pope in Rome, uh, decided to concentrate privilege of uh, declaring somebody a saint to its own institution. And from that time on, from the beginning of the 13th century, uh, local churches can only suggest that Mm -hmm. an investigation uh, be uh, initiated and then somebody can be made a saint. This was partly also because, and this is uh, getting to your question of the holy rulers, because uh, local dynasties were uh, very keen on having also some saintly members. This meant a kind of glory for the whole dynasty, that Mm -hmm. uh, there were some saintly ancestors. This was, uh, in uh, other words, uh, a a kind of sacral legitimation of the dynasty that the persons who ruled had a kind of divinity, an aura of divinity, sacrality around them. And this is something very old because uh, the pharaohs were considered to be gods. The Roman emperor was also, uh, after a time, uh, claiming to be god uh, Mm -hmm. or divine being. And in the Middle Ages, when uh, Christianity was the state religion, there had to be some ways 
to give a substitute for that because the divinity of the ruler was no more recognized. In Christianity, there was only one uh, uh, god and that couldn't be the earthly emperor. And uh, this was uh, naturally a, a problem for all the uh, monarchies because the king needed as a kind of sacrality. So there were various ways to mediate. It was uh, the king was anointed, the king was uh, ruling out of divine grace, the king was surrounded by all kinds of rituals, actually all the insignia, the throne, the orb, the scepter, everything contributed to a sacrality. And one specific way to do it was also to have somebody canonized. But that was not a simple thing because mm -hmm. uh, sainthood was a particular kind of status in Christianity and the saints uh, had to be uh, originally it was the martyrs or people who lived very, very exemplary life from the point of view of religion. And the ruler could be exemplary, but the ruler had also had to pass death sentences, which is a problem with the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And uh, the ruler had to uh, have family and engender uh, legitimate uh, followers. Uh, that was not a sin in itself, but not the way how uh, the idea of sainthood, a refusal of all earthly pleasures was going. So this there was a kind of tension between the claims to sacrality by the dynasties, mm -hmm. by the rulers, and the norms which were given by the church to sainthood. And what I was interested in, how this tension was uh, somehow managed in the med medieval period, because uh, power will have its ways. Sure, we know sure, that sure. in history. So... Uh, especially in places where uh, Christianity was new. These royal dynasties uh, were really making a very strong claim to mm. have, especially if somebody uh, died as martyr in the fight against pagans. So the first rulers frequently were killed in their uh, battles with some of their rivals. Already in Anglo-Saxon England, there were some famous uh, saints like that, St. Oswald, St. Edmund, uh, and many, uh, many others, in Scandinavia also, and in Hungary, St. Stephen was not a martyr. He mm -hmm. was a victorious founder of the state, mm -hmm. but then he was called apostle. He converted his people, mm -hmm. so he was an apostle of the Hungarian, and this is how he was in the eyes of the church, meriting the title of sainthood, even though he was uh, living like a lay person. And um, what, what struck me as very interesting in this work is that the three main royal saints of Hungary you identify as St. Stephen, uh, St. Imre, and then St. Laszlo, who you mentioned earlier. And um, in that work, you created sort of a typology where St. Stephen is sort of the uh, um, the wielder of justice and the apostle, the converter. There's St. Imre, who is the living in a chaste marriage, the uh, virgin saint. And then um, later on, uh, we get St. Laszlo, the warrior saint. Um, and it's, it struck me as a very, very interesting notion that there's three very different ideas of what makes a holy ruler, um, all presented within the first couple of generations of uh, Hungary becoming a kingdom. Really, the only type of saint that's not included in this mix is uh, that of the martyr. Do, do you see these sort of um, typologies spread all across uh, Europe, or is this very Hungary-specific, to have um, three such different saints all, uh, you know, represented uh, in these very early years? Well, uh, 
this question is concentrating on uh, dynastic and royal saints. If sure, we sure, uh, sure. take it more uh, broadly, but I think first we have to cast our eyes more or net more broadly, mm -hmm. then sainthood is precisely this is uh, that's why uh, so popular and such a good tool for showing a number of ideals to uh, the people because it is individual incorporations of merit and uh, virtue and uh, precisely like this there can be many types of saints and uh, in sainthood there are bishop saints and hermit saints there are virgin saints but there are also married women saints mm -hmm. uh, there are peasant saints and uh, urban saints all type and uh, sainthood itself is uh, precisely is so efficient because it is uh, providing individualized ideas, models for uh, realizing uh, a generic idea, that of Christian virtue. Now, more uh, uh, in a more limited sense, uh, ruler saints can be also different, and uh, there are some basic types. And uh, these Hungarian uh, royal saints, this uh, trio of Hungarian royal saints, one was not king, uh, Stephen uh, was king and Ladislas, but Emery died before he could accede to the throne. Right. Uh, he should have been the successor of Stephen, but was killed in a hunting accident. <laughs> so that is a, a particular case in Hungary, because Hungary had a unusually large concentration of dynastic saints, although it was everywhere, but mm -hmm. uh, not so many. But I could uh, tell uh, similar uh, examples from Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. uh, the three Scandinavian countries, Norway, uh, Denmark, and Sweden, had each of them had uh, one royal saint, one principal royal saint, because Denmark had some additional ones. But these three saints, uh, Olaf for Norway, was the first, killed in uh, 1030 mm -hmm. in a battle. Then Knut, who was uh, who died in the uh, second half of the, the 11th century, and Saint Eric in the 12th century, the Swedish one, were somehow also identified with three functions. Olaf uh, was uh, that of the fighter, and mm -hmm. he was identified with uh, Thor, the god, mm -hmm. the mythology of Scandinavian mythology had uh, various principal deities right, right. and one one of the most important function was that of being victorious in war there were always uh, divinities of war then uh, there was knut who was uh, identified with odin the principal uh, deity of wisdom and uh, religious cult and eric strangely enough was identified by the uh, with the half feminine freya the uh, divinity of fertility. And this was a very good theme for uh, some experts on uh, mythological studies. There was a French uh, mythological expert, Georges Dumézil, for example, who studied Scandinavian and other uh, mythological pantheons because he called them the three basic functions, uh, the divinity uh, or the divine cult, the war, and fertility. Three functions which had to be uh, mastered by the uh, ruling gods. Now these three functions cannot be precisely rediscovered in Hungarian trio <laughs> because we precisely, if so then uh, Imre is not fertility but right the opposition of that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Although that might be an interesting hypothesis how Christianity uh, is somehow not following necessarily but rather opposing some of the traditional ideals because virginity and refusal of fertility is partly having an aura of sacrality in itself, sure. although 
we can debate that. But uh, one uh, fact is true that uh, once uh, these uh, saints, which are in gathered in a kind of pantheon, are grouped, then uh, by the nature of things, there is a kind of division of labor or divi- mm-hmm. division of functions or specification of the character which comes in play. And with the three Hungarian saints, actually it came only towards the end of the Middle Ages. In the 14th century, when the Angevins were uh, making a display of their saintly ancestors, they were a newcomer dynasty and Mm -hmm. they were very keen to show themselves also as descendants of the Hungarian saint uh, rulers. Then there were some depictions uh, and these depictions showed Saint Stephen uh, with grey hair and with great beard, the the old, the sage, the uh, representative of wisdom. Ladislas, who was canonized in the 12th century, and the 12th century was that of the Crusades, was uh, indeed incorporating that idea of warlike hero. He also, in his life, had famous story related to him was the fight with the cumin mm-hmm, and liberating mm-hmm. the maiden uh, abducted by the cumin, uh, right. and a lot of frescoes depict that. And he was uh, also called Atleta Patrie, the uh, defender of the country. And Emmerich uh, naturally uh, was uh, styled as a virgin uh, youth because that's what he was, in fact, and also because it came precisely in the 12th century uh, that the uh, church wanted to oppose somehow uh, the cult of the holy rulers. And there were two uh, ideas which were uh, somehow in uh, in opposition uh, in the 12th century and in rivalry, just as like the church and the state or the church, the papacy and the empire. This was the big fight between the papacy and the empire with some very famous popes like Alexander III and emperors like Frederick Barbarossa. The emperor itself called himself sacred mm-hmm. or sacral. He said that he was the principal mediator between God and humanity, whereas the Pope said, no, 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 the emperor gets the crown from me. Mm-hmm. I'm the principal mediator. Right, He's just right. representing the secular branch of power. So there was two uh, interpretation, and the church wanted to destroy very much uh, that type of sacred standing of rulership was very much opposed. So while the emperor uh, got uh, an anti-pope to canonize Charlemagne, the church uh, was uh, putting a a kind of filter on the the institution of canonization. And... uh, Saint Ladislas and Emmerich, what we ha- what we have here is precisely uh, these two saints, the two cults unfolded in this century when uh, the church had the ideal of the that okay to have some saintly rulers, but they should be uh, perfectly in line with the teaching of the church. The teaching of the church was uh, at that moment pushing for the celibacy of the priests, uh, was pushing for the idea of virginity, was pushing for the idea that the kings should uh, respect the admonitions of the church given to them how to rule. And Emmerich was a very good uh, person for that because he received the admonition of Stephen to rule. Whereas Ladislas was good for the other side, the warlike hero. Oh, very interesting. We'll have to take a very short break, but we will be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. Uh, this is Past Perfect, a CEU Medieval Radio show, and I'm Christopher Melke, joined here today by uh, Professor Gabor Klanitsai of uh, Central European University. Thank you very much uh, for being here. 
with pleasure. Now, we, we talked in the first portion about uh, some of your re- research on uh, saintliness and kingship, and I wanted to focus a little bit um, on some of your, your other uh, um, projects in this um, in the second portion. Um, in particular, uh, I'm really interested in um, work that you've done on witchcraft and uh, folk magic. Now, uh, for me and, and, and I think a, a lot of uh, listeners at home, the sort of idea that we have uh, comes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where there's this um, witch with a carrot on her nose brought um, to the town saying, how do you know she's a witch? Well, she looks like one, and it's this really ridiculous sort of um, faux trial, uh, which... I mean, one of the questions that uh, I've, I want to um, ask you with that in mind is uh, these sort of attitudes towards witches and trials like that, is that more of a medieval thing or is that does that have more to do with the Reformation and with later centuries, in your opinion? Well, it's, it's a question of facts. The real witch hunts, well, beliefs in witches were always there, mm-hmm. but uh, the witch hunts, uh, the witchcraft as a real big uh, and uh, also destructive uh, uh, social and cultural problem came in the early modern times. I would not say the Reformation, or I would not blame the Reformation for it because the Fair Catholics enough. were uh, <laughs> just as well or even more into it than uh, the Reformation, but uh, it was the early modern times, so that mm-hmm. was the area of witch hunts. And uh, my uh, interest uh, in in all this came uh, very early, actually parallelly uh, with my interest to the sainthood, because uh, what I was interested in more general was uh, a kind of general uh, overview of popular beliefs. Mm-hmm. And there is good and there is bad. There are uh, beliefs uh, and ideals uh, about positive powers, and there is also also the dark side. Uh, so the two belong together. And I w- started some uh, uh, common uh, uh, research projects with folklorists and ethnographers uh, okay. very early already. And partly I was enjoying the possibility to work with them. And it was also from the methodological point of view very interesting because uh, uh, researches on witchcraft, especially researches done uh, by anthropologists on African and uh, American uh, uh, witchcraft, researches which were uh, very much uh, founded in a very different methodology than that of traditional historiography or even Mm -hmm. ethnography. Uh, Researches which wanted to understand uh, something uh, which is seemingly very irrational. It is irrational uh, and in the 20th century, even earlier, people were looking back uh, with a certain uh, shame to the centuries where it was so easy to make make it believe and also to uh, bring proofs in front of justice that somebody is a lover of the devil, is a witch uh, who is able to kill by looking at somebody or by uh, doing something uh, with uh, uh, an occult technology of magic and uh, uh, to sentence that person to be burnt alive. So this is actually a a horrible uh, memory Mm -hmm. in European history that thousands and thousands or uh, tens of thousands uh, were burnt uh, under this accusation and this was a mechanism which uh, seemed to be later on fully ununderstandable and irrational. So this is challenging the historian to understand. 
and it is, uh, I would say, much more uh, uh, demanding uh, uh, task than to understand why people believed in ideals and why people saw in some persons uh, such positive ideals that could be venerated as saints. Although there too, there were some uh, aspects of beliefs uh, which needed a more thorough explanation that, uh, for example, the shrines, which were places of uh, massive healing and uh, not only uh, targets of pilgrimage, but actually the way to prove, prove sainthood was uh, something uh, uh, which uh, had to include uh, the capacity of the saints to operate miracles sure, after sure, their sure. death. So of that course. was again challenging rationality. Mm-hmm. And the two problems were in a way similar okay. or had some uh, similarity. A miracle seemed to me as uh, something... Uh, going along the same uh, mechanism of uh, transcending the laws of nature as uh, maleficium, the bewitchment. Or the bewitchment was a kind of negative miracle where the witch uh, could make somebody ill or die or just uh, lose uh, the capacity for fertility. Whereas uh, miracle was just healing this mm-hmm. type of things. And very frequently saints were healing bewitched or uh, witches were seen as uh, rivals of the saints, uh, saints serving God and witches serving the devil. So this is a system, this is what I wanted to say, and when I started to work on that, that was with the the ambition to understand an underlying set of oppositions in folk belief, in the history of folk belief, and also in the historical evolution of these beliefs. Well, along the lines of folk belief, I have to ask a question, a reminiscent of Glinda the Good Witch from Wizard of Oz. Are there good witches and are there bad witches? Good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, good witches, uh, <laughs> the name uh, is used by historical analysts also, and uh, I would uh, be more precise to say uh, mm-hmm. that uh, there are, in the folk system of handling witchcraft, there are some uh, healers. Or there are some uh, shamanistic figures who have uh, the capacity to uh, protect or and the willingness to protect people from the uh, harms of the witches. But in the eyes of the church, and this is uh, actually the interesting thing, in the eyes of the church, they are the same. I because a uh, folk healer or, uh, or a witch uh, both don't have a vested uh, a power from God, but they operate, and this is uh, what the church said, they operate each uh, with the uh, tools acquired from uh, uh, the devil. And only some claim that they are good witches, but they are witches nevertheless. That's what the church said. And this is uh, something uh, which helps us to understand uh, why uh, the witchcraft accusations became uh, so uh, uh, sources of mass panic and chain accusations in the early modern times. Because in traditional societies, uh, uh, in village conflict, there is an easy way to go about with witchcraft. There is uh, somebody being accused to be a witch or having the reputation to be a witch. And then those persons who have suspicion go to a witch finder or a healer, and that person makes a kind of counter witchcraft to constrain the witch to uh, back up and lift the spell. And that's that's the way uh, the person previously feeling bewitched may feel to be healed. There is a lot of psychology, a lot of traditional folk belief in it, but there is a mechanism. But if you can drag the person whom you accuse or whom, whom you suspect of witchcraft in front of the judge and uh, make a legal uh, claim against that person 
and switching uh, the church with a very developed demonology where they explain that this is actually coming from the devil and uh, torture that person, make them confess that indeed uh, they had been allies of the devil. This is not only destroying the traditional way of handling such problems, which is not a good way, but this is still, <laughs> I would say, a more limited uh, way of resorting to this thing and is exterminating these people. And this is why uh, in witchcraft accusations, very frequently, precisely, these witchcraft healers became the accused or persons uh, who were exercising folk healing, midwives or healers or uh, shamanistic figures. In Hungarian uh, uh, folk belief, there was, uh, for example, a shamanistic sorcerer called Tartos. Mm -hmm. Then there were some trials against them. Or in Italy, uh, uh, there is a famous book by Carlo Ginzburg on uh, such uh, witch healers who called uh, themselves Benandanti, people who are walking in the good case. Uh, so actually good witches. That's, <laughs> that's what they said about themselves. Nevertheless, they were accused by uh, the Inquisition and uh, finally they were sentenced as witches just the same as those whom they claimed to fight. Sounds very interesting. And the um, what proof was usually offered that someone was a witch, uh, if you don't mind me asking? No, no, no. The, the, the question of proof is uh, actually what interests me very much in all this process. Of course, uh, uh, there is both uh, sainthood and witchcraft demanded such proofs. Uh, the, sure, uh, the fact that somebody is a saint had to be uh, not only uh, seen in the merits in life, but also how uh, that saint could really operate miracles that could be proved. And uh, for this uh, medieval uh, uh, canon law was resorting to Roman law. Proof is something which can be testified by ocular witnesses. So the canonization proceedings were actually recording the testimonies of ocular witnesses. And uh, if uh, there were many ocular witnesses for something which was claimed to be miracle, resurrection or healing or whatever, then uh, they took this for a real proof. With the witchcraft also, uh, the witchcraft, uh, the witch trial was a trial where they collected the proofs of testimonies, witnesses uh, uh, who were coming and were claiming that they themselves or their children or their animal had been harmed at witch and uh, brought some, I would say, not uh, uh, for in our eyes, not uh, uh, real evidence, but something that the witch was indeed, uh, indeed, uh, uh, Passing there was menacing, and then the harm happened. This was considered to be a proof that some people heard that person that you will regret that for <laughs> pronouncing see. a curse, and indeed uh, the curse caught. But then there were also uh, factual proofs, objects. So uh, people doing folk healing know that there are all kinds of herbs and all kinds of unguents and other things that could be considered to be proof. And the supreme proof was with witchcraft, something which one couldn't have with the saint, because the saint was by definition a dead person already at that moment. Mm -hmm. But the witch, the accused witch was alive, and that was confession. Uh -huh. And to get that confession, torture was, uh, uh, was taken. And that was the crown of proofs if somebody confessed to be a witch. And this was, this was uh, actually uh, something which by all measures they wanted to achieve. And... Uh, 
there were very few who could resist because uh, if one sees the, uh, the whole arsenal of tortures which yeah. early modern justice, and here one should not only think of Inquisition, that was not the worst. The worst were secular uh, courts, and they were doing really uh, uh, everything to prove. They, there was even an, uh, a special uh, discourse to that. Body pain was actually something which was validating uh, the statement. It was real proof is was uh, tied a little bit uh, in uh, to to this situation that in in pain they would uh, really say, uh, say what is hidden normally mm-hmm. so that's the proof that were these were the proofs and uh, i would say that uh, the moment when uh, uh, the legal system became uh, uh, i would say uh, a little bit more self-conscious of its own principles mm-hmm. so for example in france when the accused witches could appeal to the paris parliament then uh, it turned out that the simple thing that all the witnesses uh, testimonies were one could locate it into personal animosity which was of course uh, not alien to the witchcraft paradigm because the witch wanted to harm other of animosity, so it was an enemy. But to have uh, the uh, witnesses' pronouncements of, of those who were really uh, for generations the real enemies, that was not given uh, as much weight in uh, the eyes of a real legal procedure. And also various uh, physical proofs or various confessions uh, extracted by torture were uh, not taken at face value. And then, uh, uh, then that uh, could put an end to the witchcraft prosecutions. Right. On on that note, I think we'll take a very short break, but uh, we will be back momentarily. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Melke, and we're joined today by uh, Gabor Klanitsai, a professor in the Department of Medieval Studies at CEU. Thank you so much for being here today. Very glad to do that. And um, so we've had a lot of talk about your previous research so far, uh, um, saintliness, uh, holy kings, um, witches, folk belief, and um, I wanted to spend this uh, last segment talking a little bit about um, some more of y- your recent work and uh, some of your upcoming things. Um, for instance, you recently gave a talk at CEU about um, the presence of stigmata. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, what that talk was about? Well, uh, this is uh, something which is uh, related to my interest uh of a third territory, and that is uh, visions and apparitions. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was there in uh, sainthood and witchcraft also. So one thing is uh, the uh, specific supernatural standing of a person uh, which is uh, recognized by the church or pronounced by uh, the justice or the inquisition uh, and uh, call that person saint or call that person a witch and... Uh, glorify it or destroy that person. And another thing is uh, uh, the specific religious experience associated to it, and uh, uh, that interested me also, and uh, that is that w- has been part, of course, uh, of uh, many uh, saints' life, and uh, also uh, much that was told about witches, that these saints had frequently... Uh, visions, apparitions, personal experience to uh, have exchange with the divinity or have been approached by the divinity. Also in miracles, uh, miracle accounts sometimes uh, describe that uh, 
miracles happened with the direct intervention of the saint already no more among the uh, live persons, but the saint who appeared and the saint who appeared in dream or he was healing that person. And as to witches, uh, there is also the mythology of the witch's Sabbath, which is mm -hmm. uh, basically a vision, a vision where uh, the witches, or the witches are told to uh, uh, fly uh, on broomstick or on any other object uh, uh, to a huge gathering and be with the devil. But there has been a lot of discussion already in the age of witch hunts whether this happens really in, uh, in their bodies they go there or just uh, in their soul or just in dreams or just dream that they do it. In any case, uh, also many of the bewitched uh, speak about such experience that in the night uh, witches came in through the window and they changed them into horses and rode on them on their back to the witches' Sabbath and they, they were showing their wounds. This is also, so we talked about proof uh, previously. Uh -huh. A very important proof was the bodily proof that these visions are not only uh, not only in the mind but in the body so they were really true and to prove the truthfulness of visions already since the early middle ages there were some stories beat the venerable for example an uh, eighth century uh, anglo-saxon churchman uh, writing about uh, church history and also about some uh, people who had the experience to go to the other world that was a type of vision also that uh, people saw uh, others in uh, hell or in purgatory, relatives, uh, this is relatives, and then they came back or they came to themselves. They were seeing it in trance. That's an important thing that the altered states of uh, consciousness or being uh, were related to a very strange uh, bodily uh, uh, phenomenon. Uh, uh, one lies like dead, doesn't move, doesn't sense anything, and the soul is away. Body and soul, a dualism which we have to bear in mind here as a concept, uh, that it is asserted that in such cases the soul is leaving the body and going elsewhere as having some experience. And the reality of that experience is uh, always or frequently being proved by the fact that the body is transformed in some way, a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, Beeved uh, told about a certain Fursi, Furseus, who went to the other world and who was uh, uh, meeting, uh, meeting somebody whom he, kn he knew. He was pushed uh, to, towards uh, a fire and he burned uh, himself. And he was showing his wounds, wounds. Uh, oh after goodness. this vision, showing that this I got on the other world. And this, uh, this was very important to show the permeable nature of the borderlines between the other world and this one. Okay, so, so this is the starting point. Right. <laughs> and uh, like this, there are also in witchcraft accusations. Uh, there is frequently some people show the wounds they received from the witches mm. at the witches' Sabbath or elsewhere, or people who were uh, ridden on, uh, uh, so... Uh, changed into horse and the witches were riding on them and showing their back and with their wounds. But the most important and the most uh, well-known sign uh, that uh, one has had uh, contact with the supernatural in visions was uh, the, the, that uh, performed by St. Francis of Assisi, a principal right. saint in the Middle Ages who had once a vision where a seraph uh, 
the six-winged six creature, uh, also uh, uh, looking like a crucified person, was appearing to him, and uh, after this apparition, he felt that the wounds of Christ were coming out at the two uh, hands, at the feet, and at the side. So mm -hmm. the five wounds. This is what is called stigmata, and Saint Francis, according to the uh, Franciscan order, was stigmatized, mm -hmm. was bearing the wounds of Christ uh, in his body, and he acquired these wounds through a vision, through the apparition of uh, this uh, seraph crucified person, which was very soon identified as, uh, as Jesus Christ himself. And he was, uh, he was told to have been transformed by Jesus into a similar natured body. So his body was transformed to that of uh, the body of the Savior. And this was also representing uh, his standing because he was considered to be a new Christ, an alter Christus by his order. He was indeed uh, the most influential saint in the Middle Ages. And sure, sure, sure. He, the way he uh, was following uh, the message of Christ and his voluntary poverty, his uh, personal uh, way of uh, showing example was uh, not only the founding uh, uh, act of a very influential uh, religious order, that of the Franciscans, but it was the model of Christ for the Middle Ages. And what I'm dealing with currently is that this model was not only an individual model for the Middle Ages, a second coming of Christ, mm -hmm. or s almost, but it was uh, also a source of a lot of debates, whether this is possible. A lot of other very religious people were, were uh, saying that this was a kind of sacrilege. One cannot claim to be God. And uh, the Franciscans had to defend that. But there were also others who wanted to imitate and who said, I too, I was stigmatized. And it, it, it is a very interesting phenomenon. Actually, the Catholic Church, this was only a Catholic phenomenon, the Catholic Church has, uh, up to the present, more than 300 uh, documented cases where people were claiming to have been stigmatized and were showing their bleeding wounds uh, and uh, were not only bleeding and not healing wounds, which were periodically bleeding. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and this was uh, a phenomenon which uh, was, I would say, the extreme proof and is the extreme proof or is considered to be an extreme proof of the existence of God and the, the existence of uh, Christ's working in the life and also in the body mm -hmm. of, uh, of uh, true believers. And, uh, and uh, an interesting aspect, uh, one of the recent saints is Padre Pio, mm -hmm. uh, Italy, the most popular saint, uh, Capucin uh, monk, uh, or friar who was uh, uh, stigmatized during the First World War, or the end, towards the end of the First World War, and he was canonized now by Pope John Paul II in the year 2002. So, and he is the most popular saint in Italy. Uh, every church has his little statue. But apart from Saint Francis and Padre Pio in the present, uh, most of the stigmatized were women. That's uh, again a very interesting. Uh, uh, phenomenon, and that was also a source of big debate uh, because uh, uh, Franciscans, above all, but also others, were 
putting in doubt how come that the body of the male Christ is manifesting itself in the female body. Is that possible at all? Yeah, yeah. Are the women, and that's a more serious question, their role in religion, and are they uh, as high to uh, be representative of Christ for the believers? And it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon that in late medieval period there was a kind of ecstatic female religiosity which was a very strange triumph of women. Uh, as, and, and there was uh, one of the most uh, uh, popular uh, women saints or female mystics and uh, visionaries, uh, Catherine of Siena, mm-hmm. was claiming to be stigmatized and was actually uh, uh, the uh, first stigmatic wim- woman to be recognized as such and as saint by the church. There were others before her. It's very interesting, uh, and this is what made me interested in uh, stigmatized uh, saints in the first place, uh, that the Hungarian uh, uh, saintly princess, Saint Margaret of Hungary, daughter of uh, King Bila IV, uh, who was uh, after her death in 1270 uh, also object of a canonization investigation, Mm -hmm. although she was only canonized in the 20th century because some of the canonization investigations uh, were very slow to uh, get to a a conclusion. But uh, she was cultivated in the Middle Ages and in Italy where the Dominicans uh, were very eager to propose an alternative to their rivals, the Franciscans, Mm -hmm. also in the plane of stigmatics. Margaret was attributed uh, and uh, was painted to have been stigmatized, uh, attributed this uh, specific privilege before before there was uh, this other more famous and more successful uh, Dominican uh, female saint, Saint Catherine of Siena. And this showed also that the stigmatization uh, as everything in the history of religion is one thing is the experience and mm-hmm. the real religious content. And the other is that uh, inevitably this becomes also an object of rivalries, jealousies, worldly business, uses. I, one of my first books uh, was called The Uses, uses of Supernatural Power. Mm-hmm. Here we can see it uh, precisely that uh, these things are used, are being discussed, and my, I'm writing now a book uh, which is precisely uh, trying to see how stigmata have been discussed, debated, and used uh, from St. Francis up to the present. Very fascinating. We will have to take a short break, uh, but we will return with the, the conclusion to our show very briefly. Welcome back. Uh, we're here for our final segment uh, uh, on Past Perfect, and uh, um, joined today by um, Professor Gabor Klanitsai. And um, I guess just a final question in relation to the um, notion of experience um, is, uh, why do you think that experience is so important um, in talking about you know these things like mysticism, religion, witches, etc.? Well, uh, in the first place, uh, because... Uh, it is not the only uh, important. Uh, it it appeals to me because I want to understand, and I think uh, there are two ways to understand uh, uh, religion and other things too. One is uh, to see how things work in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, I have worked a lot on that. And uh, but this is something which uh, does not take into account why people are doing it and how they live this. 
and uh, so if uh, I would say with a little bit with the desire to uh, be like an anthropologist who understand why people are doing what they're doing what they think they are doing when they are doing and what they feel what they are doing when they are doing it then uh, then you you have a better understanding of their ways and maybe also why uh, uh, these beliefs can be so attractive mm-hmm. also so destructive uh, also so uh, varied so uh, this is what always puzzled me it puzzled me also because uh, it's very easy to uh, do away with the uh, beliefs such as miracle or witchcraft others on the basis of uh, uh, I would say uh, enlightenment type rationalism Mm -hmm. or also on the basis of a a kind of Marxian uh, type of uh, seeing how it is related to very powerful interests and I I see the reasons or I I accept uh, the justification of these approaches but I have uh, always uh, desired to go beyond that. Uh, I I was starting, uh, uh, my education uh, was uh, giving me these tools and I was never satisfied with it because uh, I was never uh, uh, understanding then the attraction of it despite all this. That should have been very easy. Uh, Natural Mm -hmm. sciences or uh, enlightenment or uh, I would say also sociological analysis could have uh, explained people why one shouldn't do this and yet these things are around us and these things are very powerful yes well thank you very much it's it's been a it's been a real pleasure having you here today and um for the listeners at home uh, be sure to visit us on our website at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu/radio uh, be sure to send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu and uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.